Uh, my name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the Director of Culinary Instruction, and I'm also one of your instructors in the courses. Uh, now, with, uh, without any further ado, uh, let's go ahead and jump into today's series of questions. And the first one from Audi. Thank you very much for joining us again today, Audi. I look forward to your questions. Uh, so to begin, uh, it takes me a long time to wash leeks. Uh, since I wash each leaf separately under running water, what is the best way uh, to clean and chop leeks? Well, um, a, a couple of thoughts I'll share. And, you know, one is that, uh, you know, often uh, leeks will collect that very fine uh, sort of dust-like dirt um, where the leaves sort of splay out and separate from each other, which is that in that darker green section uh, or, or area as it uh, uh, comes apart from the, the lower white section. And so if, if you can sort of quickly focus on just that area, you know, you're bound to uh, remove most of the dirt. And uh, what I mean is that it's uh, probably not necessary to net to wash the entire leaf. Um, I also realize that that fine dust-like dirt tends to cling, right, or adhere to the leaves. So it does require more than a simple rinse. Uh, you need to to, to uh, wipe your finger over it or a towel or a sponge, whatever you might be using uh, in order to remove that fine filament. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the method that I use. Uh, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, I don't get uh, too crazy with the washing, but of course that's going to be up to one's personal preference. Um, but, uh, if you can again focus on that area where the dirt um, you know tends to collect um, and then uh, you know another idea is to you know split the leak uh, down the center lengthwise and then that, that also makes it easier to pull those leaves apart and uh, it, it can be helpful to soak those leaves um, at the same time that you're rinsing them off, uh, you're using again a towel or your finger. Okay, and so you know, give that approach uh, a try, keeping those points in mind, and I'm sure that you'll discover a method that works best for you. Thank you. All right, the next question is from Nord Daily, uh, who says, "Unfortunately, due to my work schedule, I'll have to watch the recorded event." And uh, which gives me a good chance to mention to all of you, right, that um, if ever you uh, would like to see a live event, but your schedule doesn't coincide with our schedule, uh, you can catch these uh, in their recorded form uh, under the archived library of live events. Uh, and I'll mention one more thing, a little plug for our live events, uh, and that is that we have a large library of archived live events. And uh, some of them are sort of general uh, Q&A sessions like this one. And many of them are also topic specific. And so you might uh, take a look at that uh, list that we have and uh, find a topic that particularly interests you. And those topics uh, range quite a bit uh, from tips on plating to uh, introduction to Ayurveda, 
to uh, some key uh, points around business. Um, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, for example. Okay, uh, so back to today's program. Uh, to continue here, um, uh, recommendations on tools needed. Okay, uh, personally would like to invest uh, in good knives and cookware. Uh, what do you recommend? Any personal preferences? Okay, uh, so you know, in terms of tools, first of all, I would direct uh, all of our students to the tool list, the suggested tool list uh, that uh, accompanies our courses. Okay, and uh, you know you can then see uh, what you have and what you might want to uh, look for in terms of uh, adding to your collection, your toolkit. Now, uh, when it comes to Cutlery. Uh, cutlery is wide open, right, in terms of quality and uh, price point. Uh, at the high end, we can look for custom knife makers uh, that can create something that fits your hand, uh, you know, in, in an ergonomic way so that it's most, most comfortable. Uh, you get to choose materials uh, so that it's really a bespoke product. Uh, in the end. Uh, and of course, the price tag uh, is handsome as well. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of choices in between uh, these uh, well-known brands like uh, Wusthof and Schoon and others uh, that provide different uh, styles of knife, but all probably of uh, very good quality, really. And, um, you know, pricing is somewhere in the mid-range, not inexpensive, but uh, certainly not at the price point of a custom-made knife or set of knives. Uh, and if you are budget conscious uh, in any way, then uh, consider the Victorinox line of cutlery. And uh, these are from the Swiss Army Knife people. And they have different lines of, of knives, uh, like many companies do. Uh, the one that I have in mind uh, is the line, and I think it's called Fibrox, F-I-B-R-O-X. And uh, it's a relatively inexpensive line of knives. Uh, the blades are stamped steel. Um, so they're, you know, in terms of forged versus stamped, stamped is considered a lower quality, a more mass produced. Uh, but what I find with this particular uh, line of knives is that uh, it, the metal is hard enough to maintain a, a nice cutting edge for a reasonably long period of time, yet it's soft enough that uh, maintenance is relatively easy. You know, on a, on a whetstone, for example, and, uh, and uh, you know, doing what you need to, to maintain that knife. Uh, and then the, the handles are molded plastic, kind of a, a hard rubber plastic material. Um, nothing particularly interesting about them, uh, but they are hardy. Uh, they will last a long time, and uh, it's not a big investment as you're sort of jumping into the world of cooking, but provide, uh, in my opinion, a, uh, a decent level of quality uh, that you can enjoy cooking. All right, and on to the cookware. So in a similar sort of way, uh, there's quite a range of cookware uh, styles, uh, you know, in terms of the materials that are used, uh, as well as price points. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I think that any 
uh, type of cookware is quite fine. Um, if you've got um, enameled iron, that's fine. If you have stainless steel, that works great. If you've got copper, uh, tin lined, stainless steel lined, or uh, something else, uh, you know, you can make any of those work uh, to produce nice, flavorful food. It's just a matter of getting used to that particular type of cookware that you're using relative to some of the details that we share in our lessons, okay? Um, many of our lessons, especially when it comes to uh, conversations around temperature, uh, focus on stainless steel cookware. Uh, but please do not feel that stainless steel is a requirement uh, for your kitchen, okay? It's just, again, it's just a matter of getting used to what it is that you have, okay? And adjusting time and temperature uh, as you move forward, okay? Um, so, you know, in, in terms of cookware, um, I will say uh, very briefly that uh, when I look at cookware, if I can get my hands on it, uh, I like to uh, grab the handle and the pan itself and just sort of give it a little bend if I can to see how rigid, uh, you know, uh, the, the overall piece of, of uh uh, cookware is. And I want something that's going to uh, be strong enough, you know, a heavy enough gauge of metal and, uh, you know, an, an alloy, I suppose, that's not going to be too soft. Um, it's, it should be pretty rigid. Um, you know, otherwise, I would expect a shortened life. And uh, if we think about uh, quality to begin with, we can use a cookware set probably for the rest of our lives. Uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't, okay? And um, uh, again, if, if your uh, budget allows it, right, or if your aesthetics require it, you know, you can always reach out for something like all clad or, you know, something that um, is uh, uh, popular and known to be uh, good cookware, right, but uh, also comes with a healthy price tag. Um, or, you know, you might consider uh, cookware sets uh, at the lower end of the price range that still provide a good value, at least in my opinion. And examples of those uh, include uh, Costco's Kirkland brand stainless steel cookware set, uh, as well as uh, the Hinkle's uh, stainless steel cookware set. Uh, there are others, of course, but uh, those are a couple that come to mind that I have uh, uh, some experience with. Okay. And um, yeah, I think that answers the immediate questions here posed by Nordelli. All right. Thank you. All right. Next up, a uh, question from Leslie. Uh, looking for a recipe for plant-based cheese that melts on a pizza when you bake it. All the ones that I have tried to make get crusty when I bake them. I have been using a variety of cashew cheese recipes. Thank you so much for your ideas. Okay. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, when it comes to especially the um, medium hard uh, cheeses uh, that are in the plant-based category, and I'll say, I'll start with by saying from the store, um, my experience is very much as you described it, Leslie. Uh, when placed on pizza, uh, they tend to become hard, and they're a lot like uh, bark chips uh, on, on the pizza and not enjoyable. 
Now, in order to get something that is melty, um, then more liquid, uh, and sometimes that means fat, um, needs to be added to uh, the formula. Um, and and choices are out there. I have uh, I don't have a recipe off the top of my head that I can share, but um, I'll ask you to do a couple of things. One uh, is to please visit uh, Urban Cheese Craft, um, and that is a company that uh, produces and sells cheese kits both for conventional cheese and plant-based cheeses. And the resulting products are pretty nice. And I'll ask you to first visit their website, urbancheesecraft.com, and see what information you might find on their website. If you don't find uh, what you're looking for, please reach out to me at support at ruby.com, and we can further this conversation. It'll give me a chance to dig up some details as well. Thank you. And uh, the next question. Hello, Bob. Uh, we are into the slicing and dicing part of the class. We were surprised to see that tomato seeds were being removed during this process. We have never done this uh, and think they add some crunch. Uh, is there a reason to remove them? Uh, thank you very much for posing this question. And uh, this is a question that I have fielded from time to time over many years. And um, you know, the quick question or the quick response is uh, it's a matter of aesthetics, okay? Um, much of the content uh, in our courses comes from uh, the restaurant world, so the, the, the professional approach to cooking. And um, in what we refer to as classical cuisine, and, and the classical, let me, let me uh, sort of qualify that a little bit. Classical cuisine is um, this, uh, I'll say, old school approach to cooking uh, that dates back 100 and 200 and, and more years ago. Um, these are methods and techniques um, that have been handed down generation to generation um, you know, uh, by chefs um, that were associated with uh, hotels more recently, but uh, cooking for aristocracy and other elites, I'll say, in society um, prior to the advent of uh, mainstream hotels. And so in that context of cooking uh, was demanded a refinement of the food. And uh, part of that refinement was to strain out or to otherwise remove some of what was considered offensive, such as the beautiful crunch of tomato seeds, okay? And so that legacy remains today. Uh, is it required to remove the seeds? Absolutely not. And I encourage you to, to con continue enjoying the crunch uh, provided by the seeds. But, um, you know, do understand that, um, uh, you know, in certain contexts, even today, um, you know, in finer dining contexts, uh, you will see uh, that sauces are strained, uh, and uh, otherwise lumps and seeds are removed uh, for aesthetic reasons. All right, thank you. And uh, the next question, uh, I can't seem to dice onions in, into equal sized pieces. Can you give more instructions on this? Okay, um, so 
onions. Uh, onions are round and they're layered, right? So uh, the resulting pieces are, I'll say rarely going to be a dice uh, as you might achieve with a potato or a carrot or some other solid uh, vegetable, okay? Now, with that in mind, what we're after is consistency and the cons overall consistency in the size of the cuts, all right? And this is more obvious, again, when we're cutting potatoes, um, but we're generally striving for the same outcome with onions. And um, so, you know, an, an a approach uh, to consider is, you know, once you peel the, uh, the onion, you, you cut it in half or vice versa, place that, um, uh, that onion uh, hemisphere cut side down. Uh, you can make one or two or three horizontal cuts and then make your second set of uh, cuts, which are vertical, right, perpendicular to the cutting board. And then your third set of cuts uh, is, are also vertical. Uh, and that's going to be your final set that results in the smallest piece, these, these so-called dice, okay? Um, again, onions are challenging, right, because they're layered and they fall apart and you won't have a dice per se or a dice exactly uh, that results. But again, it's overall consistency uh, that we're after. Now, um, based upon the context of cooking, okay, this is sort of a continuation of what I just talked about regarding straining out seeds, like tomato seeds, okay? Um, if you're in a, a fine dining setting, or if you're cooking for a special occasion and you feel like making some nicer looking food, then as you carefully uh, make those cuts on the onion. So for example, if you're, if you're striving for a uh, call it a medium dice, which is a half inch cube, then, right, as you have the onion, you're going to come up from the cutting board a half inch and then make those uh, subsequent cuts in half inch with half inch spacing. And then the second set, right, would be with half inch spacings vertically. And then your final cuts would be with half inch spacings across the cutting board, resulting in pieces that are basically a half inch in one direction or another, although they might not be a dice. Okay, I hope that makes sense. All right. Um, but uh, so again, if you're, if you're cooking for a special occasion, you want food to look nicer, then you can be very precise and, and specific about uh, that consistency across those three sets of cuts that you apply to the onion. Okay. Uh, in, you know, routine day-to-day -day cooking when we're um, producing food very quickly. Uh, maybe the look of the food doesn't need to be so precise. Uh, you know, we might choose to forego that first set of cuts that I mentioned and just start with vertical cuts in one direction and then finish it up with the second set of vertical cuts. Okay, again, approximating uh, the size that uh, you're shooting for, okay? Um, so that's the way we deal with onions. All right, thank you. All right, next up is Cheryl. Hello. 
Um, I'm left-handed and find chopping vegetables a real chore. Is this due to, to my knife or the way I hold my knife? Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, whichever hand is dominant uh, uh, doesn't make a difference, uh, you know, under normal circumstances. Um, and also, at least in the U.S. where I'm based, uh, most knives are double beveled, right? Which means that the, the cutting edge is ground into the knife equally, uh, well, in this case, equally on both sides of the blade, okay? Uh, which means that uh, the cutting from left or the right side would be the same, right? The, another thing to consider uh, is the design of the handle. And, you know, usually... Uh, knives are created with a handle uh, that is either symmetrical all around, so it can fit uh, comfortably a left hand uh, or a right hand. Uh, in some cases, uh, handles are created to fit a right hand, right? In which case that could be creating uh, some discomfort, right? Or otherwise making more difficult the, the, uh, the cutting work. All right, so you might consider that. Uh, there are also left-handed knives uh, that you can buy, and that, that refers to uh, the handle, number one, uh, where it could be created to fit more specifically the contours of your left hand. Uh, it can also refer to the bevel, okay, on the knife. And uh, in this case, you know, I'm thinking more specifically about um, uh, Japanese knives, which are... Uh, often single beveled, right? Which means when you have the, the blade that comes down, uh, it's ground on only one side, okay? In which case there is a left-handed knife or a right-handed knife uh, to consider, okay? Uh, but that gets to be uh, you know, somewhat specialized. Again, most people are gonna be dealing with a, an evenly double beveled blade. Um, so uh, this gets on to the second part of your question. Uh, and that is the way you hold your knife. And uh, you know, if uh, you follow the, the suggestions in our uh, video lessons, then everything should be fine. Of course, you'll need to make some fine, uh, uh, fine adjustments based upon your particular ergonomics or your, your bone structure. Uh, for example, and don't don't be afraid to make small adjustments uh, to achieve comfort. Um, now, having said that, okay, I will also say that as you get into cooking, all right, and you're doing more of it, you're doing a lot of chopping of uh, of most anything, but in particular hard items like carrots and potatoes, for example, the the blade of the knife will often rest uh, right in this area of the index finger, okay, on this particular joint. Um, this will rest on the top of the knife, the spine of the knife, and this becomes sore, and it can become raw uh, as uh, skin is worn off. It can become red. It can blister. Um, skin can slough off, uh, but as you move through those phases, uh, you will eventually develop a callus right in this area or perhaps on the left hand in your case, uh, at which point uh, cutting becomes much easier uh, because you are toughened up to the task, 
Okay. And so do keep that in mind as well as you allow your body to get used to doing cooking. Okay. This is another interesting conversation. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a whole posture and a whole set of muscles, right, that are required uh, uh, to do the, the repetitive work of cooking. And it takes some adjustment uh, for most of us uh, as we take on uh, cooking at, at a greater uh, frequency. Okay. So, uh, in, you know, power through that, uh, uh, that early phase uh, to get to a point of greater enjoyment. Thank you. All right. Next up, we have a question from Richard. Uh, I have an electric knife sharpener. Do they work well or is it recommended to learn to use a whetstone? Uh-huh. So this is a great question and the one that I get periodically from students and people that I bump into on the street, uh, believe it or not. And, um, you know, my response is it depends on you and your personality. Okay. Um, a, an electric knife sharpener is a convenience appliance. Okay, so there are going to be uh, compromises. Uh, on one hand, you can do the job of sharpening almost effortlessly and very quickly. Um, now, the, the shortcomings of an electric knife sharpener, and this would also hold true for a manual knife sharpener uh, of the kind that uh, has these wheels that you pull the blade through, okay? Um, and, and I'm, uh, I'm envisioning an electric knife sharpener that is of a similar design, by the way, okay? Um, the, the shortcoming is that, um, you know, they may have just a, a couple of settings so, uh, such that there's a limited control, right, on the part of you, the cook, who is hoping to, to maintain your knife to, uh, to, to the best uh, degree. And um, they, the, the resulting edge tends to be a little bit coarse when you compare it to a knife that has been properly sharpened on a whetstone. Okay, so, um, uh, you know, which means that the knife may not cut as well uh, and that the edge, the cutting edge may not last as long. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the, the shortcoming that I usually see. Okay, with uh, these convenience uh, appliances or, or, or products. Now, on the other hand, if one is thinking of uh, taking up knife sharpening with a whetstone, uh, you know, please be aware that there is a learning curve. Okay, uh, a whetstone takes uh, a, a decent amount of practice uh, to get to the point where you can. Um, you can move that knife across that stone and keep it nice and steady uh, at the angle that's desired uh, and to do that through the curvature of the blade as well and to do that on both sides of the blade, right? In, in most cases, the knife is going to be double beveled, okay? And uh, because there's a learning curve, if you decide to, to, uh, to go this route, uh, I suggest that you use a less expensive practice knife as you develop your skill on the whetstone, okay? And then uh, use your more expensive or, you know, nicer knives uh, because um, 
you know, uh, if, if the incorrect angle is um, put on the knife or uneven bevels, um, it'll take more effort and more grinding of the blade to fix it, to correct it. Okay. Um, now, there's also an electric sharpening method that I see at the farmer's market, uh, most typically where uh, there is a person that's got one of these big wheels um, with an abrasive surface that you might see in a machine shop. And I usually see two wheels, one that's got um, uh, a, a maybe three wheels, but uh, you know, one that's got some abrasion to it. And then the final step, which is a polishing step. And I have seen uh, some people do a very good job sharpening knives on those type of electric sharpeners. But I've also seen the results, just awful results where people have just ground down the knife too much and have really damaged the blade. Uh, on that sort of a sharpener. And so please be careful uh, if you decide to send your knife out to a quote unquote professional for sharpening. Okay, I hope this, uh, uh, this discussion you know, helps contextualize uh, some of this for you. Thank you. All right, next up from Hilda. Hello, uh, I need to ask for assistance with task 62 in Forks Over Knives. It requires cooking mushrooms. Um, okay, so this sounds like the no oil saute uh, assignment. Uh, I have a serious anaphylactic allergy to mushrooms. I can't eat them or even touch them. Uh, what can I use as a substitute for this task? Okay, um, yeah, uh, this touches upon uh, this broader discussion, right, of, of foods that people avoid. And, uh, you know, please know, uh, this is for everybody out there, please know that uh, for whatever reason, right, whether it's a religious proscription, an allergy, or simply a personal dislike of a given food item, uh, that we can find a workaround, okay? Uh, understand that results uh, may not be exactly the same as what is originally presented to you, but so long as we are meeting the learning outcomes of that lesson and that assignment, then we'll be okay, all right? So in the case of this specific assignment, uh, the learning outcome is, is to figure out how to saute without oil, which poses some challenges. And this is when we, uh, we add oil, we deglaze, we might do this process multiple times uh, in order to impart the color and otherwise cook the product um, in the way that we want to. Okay, so, you know, here, uh, you know, you might uh, practice with some medium dice of carrot, for example. Uh, which I think will provide the opportunity to learn how to handle the heat and the moisture and to uh, address the sticking um, that often occurs without oil. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Thank you. And for the rest of you out there, uh, if again, if you encounter ingredients uh, that you are unable to use, um, you know, please reach out to us uh, at support at ruby.com and we can walk through your uh, particular situation. Thank you. All right, I have another question from Audi, uh, referencing task 137 in Forks Over Knives. And uh, let's see, 
uh, it suggests to consider doubling the amount of stock you make. So this sounds like the vegetable stock um, assignment. Uh, for the yeah, for the basic veg stock, since I'm doubling the recipe, how much extra time will the gentle simmer take? One batch uh, simmers for about an hour to hour and a half. Aha. So, you know, as we double the yield on recipes, um, the cooking time may or may not vary. And uh, this is uh, something that you will need to keep an eye on and just do a little bit of experimenting with. Okay, so. Uh, my suggestion to you, Audi, is uh, to maintain the same initial benchmark of an hour to an hour and a half uh, and then taste it uh, at that point and uh, taste the, the stock, right, that uh, is, is being produced. And uh, is it rich in flavor? Um, is it going to be satisfactory for what you will use it for? Um, uh, I also suggest tasting the the, the, the vegetable items in the stock uh, to see how much flavor remains in them. Your goal is to extract flavor and impart it into the water, right, to make the stock. So um, if you're left with a bunch of delicious tasting vegetables, then they probably need more simmering time. All right, thank you. And uh, let's see, we've got uh, questions from Sarah. Uh, hello, uh, I have a question about hand rolling gnocchi. If the dough just smushes when I press my middle and fourth finger down and won't roll as I try to move it forward, might this mean the dough needs more flour and to be stiffer? Uh, the quick answer would be yes, uh, that's usually the case. Um, incorporate a little bit more dough, just the minimum amount that you can get away with. Um, and then, uh, you know, also take a look at the surface on which you're trying to roll the gnocchi. Um, if you're using, for example, a gnocchi uh, rolling board, which is uh, the one that, that we have at home is, is about this big, it's got a little handle on it, thin board, uh, it's got some, um, some ridges carved into it, um, that's usually easier to use because you can tilt it and sort of roll it down so gravity works with uh, you as well. But if you're working on your countertop or a flat surface, um, try to find the amount of flour that's going to be a good balance. Okay, you want a little bit of sticking um, so that you can roll the gnocchi um, and, and, you know, not uh, in some flour so that it rolls, but not too much flour that it slides and gets smushed. Okay, that's also a problem that I've seen from time to time. So take a look at this issue from both of those angles, uh, the, the uh, rolling surface, uh, as well as the consistency of the dough, and I'm sure you'll find your solution. Thank you. And next up from Sabrina. Uh, there's a tofu tempeh section. I'm very allergic to soy. Uh, I may be able to use them, but I cannot eat them. Any ideas? Uh, okay, then the follow-up. Actually, I haven't touched soy, so I don't know if I can handle tofu. Uh, I have EpiPens. Okay, um, well, let's uh, not push you down the path of having to use an EpiPen. Uh, you know, instead... Um, Let's take a look at a, a couple of solutions here. Um, 
you know, number one, uh, a possible approach to an assignment like this is to work with somebody that can assist you, okay, in the production so that you can learn how to handle these products um, uh, just in terms of your understanding of food, okay? And, um, uh, you know, if you choose to work with gloves, for example, uh, this assistant can be your taster and, and can provide some feedback that will help you uh, address the, the written portion of the assignment. Okay. Um, and then otherwise, um, you can reach out to us, please, at um, support uh, at ruby.com, or uh, you can uh, use the Q&A function on the specific uh, task page uh, to pose a question for possible substitutes. And then, uh, you know, one of our uh, instructors or uh, on our team here uh, can help guide you through that process, okay, in order to, to, uh, to uh, maintain your focus on the desired learning outcomes of that particular lesson and assignment. All right, thank you. All right, next question. Uh, I would appreciate any specifics on how to roast vegetables without oil, uh, like what temperature and how long. Also, if there are any tips on making low-fat sauces. Okay, so we've got a couple of uh, very different questions posed here. And uh, for the first one, uh, you know, we do have uh, a, a chart uh, in PDF form that uh, you can uh, refer to and, and download, print out, and uh, post on your refrigerator door as needed, or your oven door has that. Um, you know, that will provide some suggestions uh, on given items, okay, given food items, because they all have different densities and different moisture content levels, and, you know, they can act and react um, a little bit differently in the oven, okay? Um, but, f f uh, you know, I'll first say, okay, that when doing conventional roasting with oil, it's super easy, okay, because the, um, uh, the, the oil provides some protection, uh, from the drying effect of the oven, uh, and then also um, uh, transfers heat and uh, pr uh, produces caramelization on the surface of those cut products uh, in a very beautiful and, and easy sort of way. So when we take away the fat, then uh, we need to be more patient, okay? And uh, we'll work with moisture, uh, and that's often by adding some moisture. Uh, a spray bottle works really well, uh, it, you know, sort of a mister. Um, but it, it could be done with a spoon as well. Uh, it's a little um, less clean, I would say, than using a spray bottle. And, um, you know, you'll do that in multiple steps or multiple stages. Uh, as the product cooks in order to uh, you know, maintain some, some moisture um, on, on the surface. Um, you know, keep in mind that, um, you know, some things uh, may um, be more successful than others, and that a lot of that is going to be based upon individual aesthetics. So, again, have some patience as you work through this process, okay? Uh, but take a look at our, uh, our lesson in the course uh, that covers uh, no oil roasting, and it, uh, the lesson will go into more detail there. Uh, and then also take a look at the roasting chart, which you see on the screen right now, for some suggested uh, guidelines on timing along with temperature. Okay. Um, 
And then uh, this uh, third follow-up question here from uh, Birtukan, uh, how can I roast potatoes? Um, you know, I, I would uh, suggest, first of all, um, if uh, you're okay using oil, uh, to toss them very lightly in oil, uh, put those in an oven. Um, you know, you might use a, a large dice, uh, for example, uh, a temperature of about 400 degrees, and um, cook them until they're done. Uh, Timing-wise, it can vary depending on your oven, the type of potatoes, and the size of potato cuts. Um, so I encourage you to test for doneness uh, with a, a paring knife um, or uh, a fork, uh, or even the best way would be to put it in your mouth, take a bite of it, and uh, check for doneness, okay? And that's going to help train you um, to, to develop a sense for time uh, versus what you see visually versus what it is that's actually cooking. And that's part of uh, the experience of cooking, okay? Thank you. Uh, oh, yeah, let me jump, jump back up to Emily's second question on making low-fat sauces, okay? Uh, so... You know, to, to begin with, I would suggest that you look at recipes uh, for, in this case, low-fat sauces, all right? And that's going to give you some idea of how they are composed and um, what they feel like on the palate, what they taste like. Uh, and that's going to give you some initial insight to start modifying other recipes where you might want to reduce the existing oil, Okay. And I suggest uh, when making changes to recipes that you do it little by little. And so rather than say omitting oil, and I understand that's not what you're necessarily asking, you, you say low fat rather than no fat. So focusing on low fat, uh, reduce the amount of fat, um, say by a half, and then see how that recipe acts and reacts to that change, okay? Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, this is a somewhat of an advanced question and uh, one that um, uh, would be helpful uh, if it were based upon, you know, a foundation of experience. And so, uh, Emily, I want to encourage you to start with existing low-fat sauce recipes. Get to know those, and then you can take uh, your experience to a regular recipe and start to reduce fat and have a better idea of what's going on, okay? And as you start off down that path, if you have more specific questions, reach out to us at, Ruby, at support at ruby.com. Thank you. All right, uh, next question. Uh, is there something that can be substituted for tofu or a soy-based product for things like tofu ricotta, uh, tofu egg salad for someone who is intolerant to soy? Uh, yes, you know, depending on what it is that's uh, you know, being produced, uh, the suggestions will differ, okay? And so whenever we're making substitutions, and this is um, uh, a general discussion, okay, it could be any ingredient in most any recipe, think about uh, the function of the original ingredient. What is it doing? Uh, is it adding a texture? Is it adding a color, a flavor? Um, uh, is it binding? Uh, you know, is it doing something else? Is it, is it, is it um, emulsifying, for example? Okay. Uh, and then we think about 
substitutions that will mimic that function. Uh, keep in mind that very often uh, it's necessary to bring in more than one ingredient in order to uh, mimic the function of an ingredient that we're removing from a recipe. Okay, so substitution, sub, uh, finding the right substitution uh, can require some experimentation, some practice on your part uh, in order to find that right balance. Okay, but uh, back to your specific question here regarding, um, let's see here, tofu ricotta. You know, here you might try white beans and see uh, if you like that. Uh, you know, in terms of a, a tofu egg salad, uh, you might try um, uh, cauliflower, like cauliflower rice. Um, you know, that might have a texture uh, that is satisfactory to you uh, in this situation. Okay. Now, uh, the other thing I want to mention, uh, when we make substitutions to a recipe, uh, we're changing the recipe at that point. So please expect the results to be different, okay? Uh, this means that uh, we may have to allow ourselves to get used to the new outcome, okay? That makes sense, right? If we're changing something up front in the ingredient list, then the results are probably gonna be different, okay? And so you, we need to sort of change our mindset expect something different, and very often allow ourselves to enjoy the new experience, right? So this is, this is uh, food psychology 101, all right? Thank you. Uh, it looks like we have a follow-up question here from Hannah uh, for the soy allergy questions, uh, tofu ricotta. Okay, Kite Hill Creamery's almond ricotta might work. Thank you very much, Hannah. Uh, I appreciate your uh, participation here and your suggestion. Excellent, uh, excellent suggestion. All right, uh, next, next up, uh, hello, Hugo. Uh, could you please elaborate on best practices to store vegetables in the fridge, how to store it, what packages, etc. Okay, uh, for storing food, um, there is certainly, you know, more than one way to store foods. And um, um, some of this, frankly, depends upon the, the particular setting and, and uh, what else is going on in, in the context, as well as, your own personal preference. Um, you presented kind of a, a bit of an open-ended question here, um, but let me uh, pick out a, a couple of scenarios, okay? If we're talking about fresh vegetables, um, then one of the things to keep in mind is that the refrigerator is fundamentally a drying, a dehydrating environment. So it is helpful to provide some protection uh, on this, uh, you know, around the vegetables or on the surface uh, to protect those from the circulating air and uh, the moisture that might be drawn out. And so uh, consider covering uh, the product with a towel. And, you know, I will often use a lightly damp towel in order to um, mitigate moisture loss. Um, you know, some things will become uh, limp and flabby uh, quicker than others, and some of that can be mitigated by, um, you know, uh, providing a lightly doubt, uh, uh, damp towel uh, as protection, okay? 
for cut vegetables that are still in their fresh state, uh, I like to put those in, uh, again, in a, you got to protect it from the drying effect. So I put it into some sort of a covered container. Glass or plastic is fine, whatever you prefer. Um, and then, you know, keep an eye on the shelf life of the product uh, relative to your usage rate. Right. So that's going to be a, an important one. OK. And in fact, I'm going to get back to that in a moment here. The other scenario is that if you've got some cooked vegetables and so this could be uh, leftover food or it could be part of your batch cooking strategy. Uh, in this case, uh, we need to put that into uh, ideally, I would say, a covered container. Um, and uh, uh, again, keep an eye on your usage rate you know, relative to um, the, the quantity that you're producing. OK, uh, keep in mind that uh, vegetables can be frozen uh, as well. And uh, if uh, an item is cooked and then frozen, Generally speaking, when it's defrosted, it'll look a lot like what it did before it went into the freezer. But uh, if you're uh, putting a fresh item in the freezer, um, it will often come out uh, soft, okay, uh, just due to the uh, cell membranes that are uh, usually damaged uh, through the freeze-thaw cycle. I'm going to go back really to uh, what is step one uh, in my mind, and that is to look at the quantities that you purchase. So the quantity uh, should reflect your usage rate. And um, if you buy you know, too much food, then, of course, it's going to deteriorate in quality as it sits in the refrigerator. And um, this is where uh, we might think about uh, freezing uh, the product in order to extend the shelf life. OK. Yeah, let me move on to the next question from Krissa. OK, uh, Hugo, hopefully that, uh, you know, helped. Uh, you know, get your thoughts going around uh, one or, or, or a couple of approaches that you might try. Okay, thank you. All right, what's the best way to store cilantro? Um, a couple of things come to mind. And, uh, you know, one is uh, to store it in just a little bit of water, uh, sitting up like a bouquet of flowers. Uh, this can be in a glass, for example. Um, try not to let the water touch the leaves. The leaves tend to break down pretty quickly. Um, and then also uh, change the water daily. And then also use the cilantro as quickly as you can. Okay, cilantro is, uh, is kind of finicky. Uh, it'll break down pretty quickly. Um, and then, uh, you know, an another way to, to do that is um, to remove cilantro from a plastic bag that it, that it might be in and to gently wrap it with uh, a paper towel or even a cloth towel. And you might uh, experiment between using a dry towel uh, and a very lightly damp towel, okay, again, to mitigate some of the moisture loss that otherwise will be experienced in the refrigerator. Um, let's see, anything else come to mind? The other thing is that the, the freshness of the cilantro uh, when you bring it home makes a really big difference. If it's, uh, if it's fresh cilantro, uh, it, it will do much better uh, than if it's been sitting around a few, for a few days at the store. Okay, and I realize we can't always control that. Uh, therefore, um, try to use it as quickly as you can. Uh, keep in mind here also that we can freeze cilantro. 
And, you know, like uh, other soft herbs like uh, basil, let's say, uh, you can uh, chop the basil, you can, uh, you know, even puree it if you want to, and then freeze it into small units like ice cube size units uh, to be used, uh, you know, in a sauce or in a chutney or, or some other uh, uh, form, uh, of course, where the fresh, um, you know, leaves are, are not going to be used. Okay, thank you. All right, this uh, was a good segue then into um, the next question here on fresh herbs. Uh, I'm apprehensive with them since I want uh, to fully wash fresh produce. Uh, what's the safest way to wash fresh herbs? Uh, then I can't seem to chop them because they are damp despite trying to dry them. Uh, I understand. I experienced the same thing. And um, so, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, safest way to wash fresh herbs. Um, you know, I just simply run them under some uh, cold water, and uh, sometimes if they're if they look sandy or particularly dirty, um, you know, I'll fill up a bowl and sort of swish them around in the bowl to to uh, pull out um, any of the loose um, sand or dirt. But then otherwise, hold it stem up, leaves down under the running faucet to try to pull out. Um, you know, any residual uh, loose dirt. A lot of times they come with a, 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 a twisty tie or a rubber band around the stem and dirt can collect around there. Uh, so untie it and I'll grab the, the leaf end and then just sort of um, uh, run the, the stems underwater as I move my fingers through them to loosen up any dirt that might have been hiding under the rubber band or twisty tie, okay? Uh, so give that approach a try. Uh, and then when it comes to chopping them, you know, I'll grab the bunch by the stem and I just, you know, I just give them a, a three or four um, sort of slaps like that against the sink uh, or against a towel. Uh, and that works for me. It, it, it removes most of the, uh, the water. Um, or you can use a salad spinner. And uh, those are pretty effective at removing water from any of these sort of uh, leafy things, okay? Um, when using a salad spinner, whether it's for lettuce, greens, or whether it's for a bunch of cilantro, um, you know, I recommend uh, doing an initial spin and then stopping and then sort of fluffing up uh, the, all the, the contents and then giving it another good spin. And that usually pulls out uh, more water that was, you know, otherwise trapped uh, in some way or another, you know, in the structure of the leaves. All right. Thank you. All right. Next up, um, I already finished my course last week. When should I expect to receive the certification? Okay. Uh, so, Pus, um, you can go to your dashboard and you can download the certificate all by yourself. Okay, once all of your uh, tasks are checked complete, and you know you're 100% done, and um, you've you've you know clicked you know you, that you finished the, the course, um, you can access that certificate uh, uh, and download it uh, from your dashboard. Thank you. Now, if you have any further questions, please reach out to uh, support at ruby.com. Uh, what is the best way to wash produce? Um, 
uh, rinsing, soaking, using a vegetable wash solution or just water. Also, I've heard that mushrooms just need to be wiped off uh, not using water. Okay, so um, yeah, any of the above uh, are correct and can be effective. Uh, some of this is based upon, um, or all of it, I guess, is based upon personal preference. Uh, in terms of, you know, soaking, uh, there are, as you mentioned, these, these solutions that you can buy. Um, you know, you can also use a, a vinegar solution, uh, which uh, some testing has shown to be just as, as effective as store-bought solutions uh, and probably a lot cheaper. Um, you know, some of this uh, is based upon your time and space availability. Certainly soaking uh, requires more of that uh, versus simply rinsing. And then, uh, of course, there are, you know, your own um, sort of individual concerns, right, around uh, the, the cleanliness of the food that need to be addressed. Um, you know, I'm the type of person that will eat food off of the ground, uh, I've taken food away from a dog, um, you know, things like, like that don't bother me. And um, I realize that other people um, require uh, much more cleanliness than perhaps I do. And in that case, you need to find your place of comfort. And if it means soaking items in a solution, you know, for a few minutes, then take that route. Uh, if a simple rinse uh, will suffice, uh, then I think that can be fine as well. Okay, but you need to find your place of comfort. Okay. Um, and regarding mushrooms, yes. Um, you know, some mushrooms will soak up water, uh, hang on to water uh, more quickly and uh, more so than other mushrooms. And uh, you know, part of this is uh, in terms of what to do is going to be based on personal preference. Okay, um, you know, so for, you know, for example, uh, I've been out a number of times uh, foraging for chanterelles. For ex example, um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of chefs, a lot of my colleagues will say, "Oh, don't ever uh, wash chanterelles, you know, with water. Use only a mushroom brush." Yada yada. Um, I've tried it both ways. What I found is that a very quick uh, rinse in order to get some of those persnickety pine needles off of the gills um, is required, unless you don't mind the pine needles in your food, which sometimes I don't mind. That's another story, I suppose. But um, uh, a quick rinse and then a little drying time uh, on a sheet pan with towels uh, is quite fine. Um, you know, it uh, the results uh, don't vary when compared to um, brushing. So experiment with this. Uh, find out what is going to work with you in terms of your space and your time resources and pick a path. All right. Thank you. All right. Hello, hello. Um, let's see. I like uh, to be the best chef, uh, but my problem is language and technology. Uh, but I have a good understanding uh, from day to day. Um, I will try my best. I need to learn American food. Okay. Uh, so um, let's see where to start with this. I think, you know, Virutukan, uh, um, I recognize your, your name, you know, uh, in uh, one of our enterprise courses. 
And, um, you know, I recommend, uh, as I would for uh, any of our students in our courses, to, to really focus on learning the cooking methods and all of the supporting techniques that are fundamental uh, to the kitchen, uh, to good food handling, okay? And you'll be able to apply those skills and that knowledge to most any cooking that you do, all right? Um, understanding also that as we get into more specific world regional cuisine, uh, that you'll learn uh, specific uh, techniques, you know, that might, uh, you know, uh, be associated with that given part of the world, okay? But the, the foundational methods and techniques that uh, we teach through Ruby um, will be good for you. And so practice makes better and repetition is going to be important, okay? Now, one of the advantages of working in a high-volume kitchen, you know, a, uh, a restaurant kitchen, a commercial kitchen of some sort, is that you're going to have uh, repetition that comes with that volume food production setting. Take advantage of that. Really focus on the details of what it is that you're producing, the details of what you're doing, okay? And uh, you are going to experience um, a climb right up that learning curve. Uh, and the other thing is uh, regarding American food, um, practice, practice, practice. You know, start out with things that you enjoy, other things that uh, grab your curiosity, and have some fun with it. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up, uh, hello, Lisa. Uh, just a quick note to say that I am loving this course and ask a quick question. Uh, I remember reading somewhere, uh, but now I can't find it, uh, details about how long we have access to the course material, videos and recipes, etc. Okay, so, you know, fundamentally you have access to the content uh, for life. Uh, now, what does go away in terms of access is um, the Q&A discussion uh, and your quizzes, okay? But otherwise, you know, the other content uh, that you've mentioned here, uh, you'll be able to uh, review uh, and access uh, those things. All right, thank you. All right, and Jan says, uh, practice knife skills. Uh, the knife rubs up against my middle finger between the joints. Uh, does it take time to get used to that? Um, the quick answer is yes, and um, this is uh, a, a bit of a continuation, I think, from my earlier discussion on knife handling. And, you know, depending on just how we hold the knife, you know, we'll, we'll find that our fingers will rub on some part of the blade or another, especially as we choke up on the knife, okay, which is uh, typically the preferred way uh, to, or I'll say generally the preferred way to hold the knife, with exceptions, of course. Um, so yes, um, it'll take time to get used to that, um, but also you need to figure out uh, if um, your own hand structure uh, might be leading to your discomfort, in which case you'll need to find um, some sort of a workaround, uh, some sort of a compromise, right? Some sort of a, uh, a middle ground, right? That's gonna be com comfortable for you. But uh, generally it's, uh, something that we get used to. All right. Thank you. All right. 
Uh, so we have some feedback here. I wash and spin dry after chopping. Okay, excellent. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, the the sharing of your experience. Okay, and uh, this is going to be uh, a successful practice here. So use a, a spinner um, after you chop food. You can rinse it in there, and uh, you're good to go. All right. And then uh, the next one um, from uh, Salivia. Uh, suppose it's difficult to get the materials required for the task. Okay, and it's not available in place where I, uh, I am, like I have failed to get tofu leaks. Uh, so what can I do? Uh, because I failed to complete my course because of absence of materials. Okay, um, please reach out to us, okay? And I suggest um, support at ruby.com. And uh, I can help you or one of our teammates uh, can help you. And when you do write us, please provide a link to the task page uh, or the recipe in question so we can see the specific context and we can work with you to find a solution, okay? And uh, part of this will also be to better understand what you do and don't have access to in your particular location. So any of that information would be helpful. Thank you. All right, and then the last question for the day is from Stephen. Uh, what's the best way to rotate frozen foods? Ah, okay, so... Uh, this is a great question to wrap things up with today. It's a short one, but it's a big topic. Uh, when it comes to food quality, okay, in the freezer, this is, um, um, I think, much like the fridge, okay, where uh, best practice, right, is to what we call rotate food based upon what we call the FIFO system. F-I-F-O is an acronym that stands for first in first out and the premise here is that the first thing that you buy should be the first thing that you use and any subsequent purchases of that same food item uh, should be used afterwards okay in order to maintain the best quality of your product in order to help you along uh, it is uh, uh, the typical practice in professional kitchens and also uh, good practice in home kitchens to, you know, use a Sharpie or, you know, some other um, sort of a writing tool and write the date uh, uh, that you purchased the item directly on the package uh, or label that food item in some way. It could be a piece of masking tape uh, on which you write the date and then you stick that piece of tape on the food in some way. Um, and then this way, you know, you'll know uh, how to organize your storage area, including the freezer in this case, and which item to pull out first, okay? Um, which reminds me, I should probably do that in my own freezer. Um, now, the, the next step also, uh, I would say in particular in the freezer, is to label that food with the item name in addition to the date that you put it in the freezer, okay? A lot of times things in freezers are wrapped up in plastic or, or uh, foil, um, or they start to uh, develop uh, ice crystals and it gets sort of hard to see. And uh, so 
having a label of the food item name along with the date is most helpful. Okay, but that is the fundamental practice, Stephen, uh, to use the FIFO method with labels. All right. Thank you very much for this final question. And I want to thank all of you uh, for joining me today for my office hours. And I look forward to seeing you again. Uh, in the meantime, uh, enjoy cooking. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.